Today on the Movement of Color podcast, we have Aaron Bowersock, and he'll be describing his new Day of the Dead project, Pop Muertos. Also on the show, we have two wonderful activists from the Black Rose Federation. Again, my name is Brandon Payton Carrillo. I'll be your host. So let's get started. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? I'm doing great, Brandon. How are you doing today? I am absolutely fantastic. And, man, I'm just really, really psyched to be in the presence of Aaron Bowersock, the creator of Pop Muertos. That's yeah. right, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here also, Brandon. Oh, sweet. So, for those listeners who are not familiar with Pop Muertos, what are they? What's going on? So, Pat Muertos, um, it's a Day of the Dead, so Dia de los Muertos, um, mashup project that I do. Um, I started several years ago with, uh, you might be familiar with this um, Instagram drawing challenge called Inktober. Uh, it might spill over to Tumblr and Twitter as well, but basically you want to draw one drawing uh, a day for the month of October, and there was a... Pokemon that I always thought was one of the most ridiculous Pokemon out there. His name is Ludicolo. Um, I guess he's a Mexican-inspired Pokemon. He's a cactus who part of his skin, I guess, is a poncho, and part of his head is a sombrero. Oh, oh he's also a, he's also a duck uh, for some reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, a side note on Ludicolo, one of his original Pokemon Pokedex entries was even though this Pokemon has a lot of work to do, he's often found sleeping or dancing. And I thought that was super racist, Japan. Um, <laughs> but uh, during this uh, Inktober challenge, I decided to draw Ludicolo with a lot of Day of the Dead inspired design motifs. So a lot of the flourishes, the flowers, um, and the patterns like that. And after I completed it, I was like, oh, this could actually be something. Um, so Pot Muertos kind of stemmed from that original drawing. And then I did all 152 original Gen 1 Pokemon, um, which was a project that took three years. And after that, uh, I kind of expanded it. So at the time, it was called Poke Muertos. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got really tired of drawing Pokemon. So I needed to figure out how to branch out. And that's when I came up with Pop Muertos, so pop culture, and then Muertos, um, which really allowed me to draw whatever my heart desired. So that's kind of how we got here today. Wow. So what inspires some of your newer Pop Muertos? Like, what are you pulling from? Where are you like, damn, that should be a Pop Muerto? Sure, sure. Um, so... Typically, characters that have, like, fun uniforms or just, like, uh, 
pretty um, pretty interesting or pretty iconic uh, design. Um, I know I can pop a lot of patterns in there and really make it something my own because in addition to the Day of the Dead uh, design styles, I also have them all as kind of chibi proportions, if you're not familiar with chibi. Um, it's a... Japanese cartoon art style where everything is super cute, right? So the big heads, um, tiny squat bodies, but uh, what this allows for is to bring in all the fabulous colors and all the um, the patterns and, yeah, I mentioned flourishes. And on top of that, they're also in this very cute style. So it's a very uh, fun project. And uh, if I kind of... Uh, get any character that I really enjoy. Um, so for instance, I just came back from a sailor moon festival. It was uh, maybe a month ago Mm. and I grew up watching sailor moon every single day before school at 6am. And, uh, to do these characters in this style, I just had a blast. I started rewatching all the old anime that, uh, on Hulu and, uh, while I was drawing, and just taking those colors and seeing what I can make more out of it. Um, and also, sometimes I just ask people. Like, I have a, uh, one of my cousin's kids. I think he's about nine now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's pretty introverted. And uh, I found out that he loves my projects. So I was like, oh, okay. I go, Jack. I'm flying back to Seattle. I was in uh, Wisconsin at the time. I'm flying back to Seattle tonight. Uh, so I'm going to have about three hours to draw. What superhero should I draw? And he goes, Iron Man. I said, you got it, man. And uh, yeah, a week later, I finished Iron Man. I sent it off. And I was like, hey, Jack, what do you think? And so he loved it. And I was very happy. So um, I might find things that I love, but also just whatever, whatever, um, People who follow the project want to see if it's something that I'm feeling too. I'll jump into it. Awesome. I like that. So is Jack representative of like the average um, Pop Muerto fan or what What does that person look like? Let's see. I, I don't think so. Uh, based on my Instagram and Facebook analytics, the average Pop Muerto fan is between about 18 and 30. Um, split between uh, male and female. So uh, actually the, the average Pop Muerto fan besides the demographics is just anybody who totally geeks out about something. So when when I tell people that, oh, this project is all about the geeky stuff that I love, um, I'm not just making that up. So uh, like I do Deadpool, Wolverine, all this kind of stuff. So anybody who is part of these fandoms, um, it really seems to vibe with them and they seem like really into it when they see it at the booth. Cause I do, uh, comic, uh, comic cons and anime shows and things like this. They're just like, uh, one dude is like, Oh, this stuff is epic. And that's, that's what I love to hear. It's like, I love this stuff. You love this stuff. Let's, uh, let's love this stuff. So that's, uh, the average, that's the average fan right there. Someone who just, Loves the fandom and loves the spin on it. All right, so let me ask you this question. Is there anything 
that you wouldn't turn into a pop muerto. Like, for example, like a Jeffrey Dahmer pop muerto. <laughs> so I think about this stuff sometimes. Um, so with Day of the Dead, the whole point of the the candy skulls, the calaveras, and all that kind of stuff is to be part of the ofrenda, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this this idea has gotten more, a little bit more popular with movies like Coco and Book of Life and all this kind of stuff. But um, So right around November 1st and 2nd is when Dia de los Muertos actually is. And in traditional Mexican culture, uh, family would produce the ofrenda with pictures and offerings for our um, ancestors. And it's supposed to be this big tribute thing and inclusive thing that we're celebrating uh, the lives that have preceded ours. So, yeah, sometimes I wonder what do I do and what can't I do? Um, I've been so someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, some, if we take it to the extremes of Hitler or something, that's, <laughs> that doesn't seem cool for me. And the whole thing is I'm doing things that people love, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, do you love Jeffrey Dahmer? Do you love – sure, some people love Jeffrey Dahmer, but uh, that's a very good question. I hadn't thought about it before, but thinking about it right now, probably not. Probably not. I want to do things that people love, that people enjoy. Um, Some things that I haven't done too much, I haven't done right yet, is real people. Mm. So, um, yeah, characters, cartoons, they're easier, but real people, like um, Day of the Dead is coming up, and we're going to, we actually don't have an ofrenda in our house. We haven't yet. Um, but I'm thinking about, and I was talking to my mom about this, I think we're going to start getting into it because, uh, both me and my wife, uh, a few years ago, we both lost our grandmothers, our Mm -hmm. final remaining grandmothers in the same month. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it would be nice to maybe have an ofrenda for them. Um, and I wonder if I would ever do a pop muerto, uh, featuring like, my my grandma i don't know it's it's something i've been thinking about and it might be something i try soon well obviously sorry for your loss but man that would be kind of cool if your grandmother kind of had a nerdy side of that she probably would dig <laughs> it right she might she might I, I never saw that nerdy side but maybe it was there so let me ask you this question because i feel screwed because in my family we didn't do done uh, Dia de los Muertos. Uh-huh. You know, and we were pretty Mexican on everything else. I, I make a bitchin' Mexican breakfast, and I, you know, and that's just by osmosis, you know. But uh-huh. we didn't do Dia de los Muertos. Did you guys do that coming up? So, no, we didn't. Uh, so my family were Tejano or Chicano, um, whichever one. Uh so we got a lot of traditions, like we got the cascarones around Easter time, and um, we have all the wonderful foods and uh, mariachis for birthdays and stuff like that. But we never ended up doing Dia de los Muertos. But um, I don't feel discouraged because 
yeah, like I said, I was talking to my mom and this is something that we can do. No one's stopping us from doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no how to make an ofrenda or anything like that. So I think this year, uh, a lot of us were probably just going to go for it. And I would encourage other people to go for it as well. So if you feel like that hasn't been part of, uh, your family's tradition, um, no time like the present to get it going, I would say. Yeah, I think I think so. Um, I think you might have made a made a change in my life on this. <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure the missus she'll go for it too. So yeah, yeah. So it's fair to say, Aaron, you're a big lefty, right? Yeah, I'm left-handed, and also in my political views, yes. Yes, that's awesome. That, that's <laughs> both of us. Um, so how does um, being a socialist or a leftist influence your work if it influences it at all so that is something that's another thing I've been thinking about this year in my project in Pop Muertos I try not to let that stuff come up too much um but in the current state of the world, and uh, anybody would argue in the state that it's always been, but now it's just like rearing its ugly head, um, where race, overt racism, it's just out of the closet. It's, it's walking down the streets, uh, wearing Make, Make America Great Again hats, burning tiki torches, right? So it's in your face. Um, children are being separated at the border, so... Where is the benefit for hiding all this stuff or not being overt about it, about my uh, political views and activism? Um, I think when I think what I'm going to be leading towards as far as Pop Huertos goes is continue to do what I do, but don't be afraid to take stances when they're presented. Uh, for instance, um, this is the only thing that's ever come up so far. Uh, on my Paparantos Instagram, I got a Blue Lives Matter account, like a major one with like 20,000 followers that started following me. Ooh. And I saw that they I, – I checked them out and they were um, they were sharing a lot of stuff from the people that they follow. And I was like, oh, hell to the no. I do not want my – art and my creations to be associated in any way with this kind of stuff. So I blocked them. Um, and yeah, that kind of stuff, uh, is like the inkling of what I would do. Um, as far as my political views and how to work them in, I think when you're on social media, and your brand, like my brand is, the accounts that you associate with, the ideas that you share, the other art you share, um, it's like everyone's granny used to say, you show me your friends, I'll show you who you are, right? Hmm. So if, if I'm retweeting and sharing and interacting with the right people, that's got to show where my values as an artist is and how... Um, I want my my brand, uh, what it was to be, uh, viewed. Um, 
Although, I will say, there is a convention coming up that I'm going to called Geek Girl Con here in Seattle. Mm. And first and foremost, they want to highlight and elevate um, geeky women, basically. So uh, from young girls to women just breaking through their careers and all this stuff, they want to elevate them and give them space. Uh, one of the sessions that they have is called Como Se Dice Nerd. And it's a panel on, in today's day and age, with black and brown bodies being um, exploited, like, on the forefront. It's clear that it's happening now, with families being ripped apart. How do we continue creating and trying to be positive and feel like your art is worth something when so much bad stuff is happening and you could be doing something else? So... I'm very interested in what this panel has to say. Um, I'm sure it's going to help me uh, understand what I could be doing, what I should be doing, and if I'm doing this enough. So I'm not all the way there yet, um, but I'm learning. Yeah. Yeah. This is a growth process. Mm -hmm. So where can people find Pop Muertos? So people can find uh, all my original prints, pins, uh, stickers, and magnets on my website, popmuertos.com. That's P-O-P-M, as in Mary, U-E-R-T-O-S.com. And that same popmuertos on Instagram, Twitter, and uh, lately I've been setting up to go live on Twitch. So I'll be a streamer. So um, I figure I'm doing the process anyways. I might as well invite people in. Plus, I could probably get a bunch of sick ideas uh, and discussion going, and we can talk about Day of the Dead. We can talk about anything that kind of comes up. So um, just like a discussion like we're having, we can have that live on stream, and uh, the art will be better for it. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you for your time as always. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, Brandon. For sure. podcast we don't have a lot of rebuttals or you know people contacting us or contacting us period about something that we are covering but today fortunately to show us kind of the error of our ways but we kind of made a mistake i have two wonderful activists from the black rose federation i have marky and jonathan how are you guys doing today great man Doing great. Awesome, awesome. So let's just jump right into it. Um, so in our anarchism series that we covered, we did an episode on platformism. And we incorrectly lumped in the Black Rose Federation into the platformism kind of category. And um, I just want to ask the both of you, what is the Black Rose Federation about? Okay, well, so, um, I mean, personally, I wouldn't think about it as a rebuttal. Like, I appreciate the opportunity for us to, to like, clarify, like, what our organization represents. And, um, I mean, I guess what I would say is it's, like, a federation of 
like-minded anarchists, anarchist communists in the class struggle tradition. Um, and, you know, we kind of recognize the need to sort of pull our efforts together in terms of analysis, in terms of just coordinating across like different localities and not just sort of being isolated, you know, cause I think a lot of us, like certainly myself, I've had a lot of those experiences where when you're just kind of like, you know, you might consider yourself like an anarchist communist and kind of be from that ideological tradition, but also be very isolated and kind of not really have a place like a political home. So I think uh, we want black girls to be that political home for, you know, motivated like anarchist militants. Yeah. Um, so I agree with what uh, uh, Jonathan said. Uh, and Black Rose kind of draws um, inspiration from Esposofismo, which is mostly occurring in South America. And so what it is is basically to create a specific anarchist group in which anarchists could organize and unite among certain specific like points of unity or ideals on which they agree on in order to, you know, create organizational goals in the short term and long term and maybe effectively, you know, arise change among the community, not just in, you know, harsh political times such as under Trump's presidency, but also when things aren't necessarily super, I guess, like, transparently messed up as it was during the Obama era. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of kind of like a like a long term ongoing thing. Like you know, we're, we're not just like a product of of like you know the, the sort of Trump era where everybody's like getting to left politics. Like a lot of people were into some form of like militant like anarchist activity or another. Like before that, you know, actually going back, like I was really impressed. Like like I met Marky and a bunch of folks at the convention that we had recently, like in LA. There are people that have you know, like a decade of experience in different types of activism. So like just having that is, is pretty amazing, you know, and feeling like, like you're part of something bigger, which I guess, you know, I can see why one would like kind of associate that with platformism, even though it isn't like what Marky was saying, it's more like especially which there's some similarities, like basically recognizing the need for like anarchists to come together, pool their resources around like, you know, shared analysis, shared, uh, kind of points of unity, like theoretical unity, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, a lot of what we do hinges on like our analysis of what's going on, like in, you know, like in the local national context and international too. Like we're, we're in contact with a lot of folks in, in Latin America who represent anarchist organizations as well. So. Awesome. Well, I know that you mentioned that, it's amazing feeling to feel like you're you're bigger than the sum of your parts. That there's something bigger going on. From my research and what I see, um, Black Rose Federation is pretty much the largest anarchist organization that explicitly anarchist organization in in America. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but what are some of the benefits of having kind of that weight? And being a part of that organization. Um, well, you're not only able to, or at least in my experience, is that 
not only able to organize at a local level, but get insight on what's happening across the United States and internationally in order to help you organize and see the bigger picture of what's happening, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, for instance, gentrification, as what, as what we were discussing earlier, like, that's something that's happening in different cities across the United States, but there's something very specific to L.A. that's probably different from another city. And so being part of the federation is that you're able to communicate with others directly from the same point of view and being able to come up with a strategy in which, you know, how can we combat, you know, something like gentrification? How can we organize in our neighborhoods? What, what things can we draw from together, right? So I think that's the benefit of being part of such a, you know, a national organization of people who kind of have the same uh, political ideology. Yeah, and there's, like, there are two other things that, that occur to me. Like, one is, uh, you know, I, I was talking about earlier, like, I had this experience, like, I became an anarchist when I was, like, younger, kind of, like, a teenager, you know, like, I was never really part of the punk scene or anything like that, but, um, I mean, even when I got exposed to activism, it's like, there's this thing that happens when, you know, you have a protest, usually it's kind of organized by more sort of like mainstream progressive organizations and stuff like that. And then you have a couple of like weird anarchist kids in the corner, you know, <laughs> and, and like when that happens, it's really hard to get consistent, like work out of that when you're just like, okay, yeah, I'm the lone anarchist, just be like the weird kid in the corner, you know, while, while the stuff is going on, the narrative is kind of going in a, a direction that's really like not revolutionary at all. At all. <laughs> um, uh, and I, the thing that happens with Black Rose is that, you know, when, when folks move from place to place, uh, having the support of that, you know, really, I mean, Black Rose is mostly in the United States, but like we, again, we have connections like with folks from other countries as well. Like when people move, for example, to other states, um, having that like support network also helps those individuals kind of like build networks like in the new places that they go and, and kind of like spread you know, like spread the ideology, I guess, like kind of spread the, uh, you know, methodology and kind of like form nuclei for, for like anarchist activism, which is really cool. Like, like I met a lot of individuals who are doing great work who like relocated. So I'm going to take a pivot because we're talking about the network and all the positive things that come from that. But let's go back to your locality. So you guys are locating on the coast. So we got somebody... In Miami, Jonathan and Marky, you're out in L.A., correct? Yes. So, because if all politics is local, if there are two things that you're battling in your locale, what are those two things? Well, for L.A., it's mainly, like, um, tenants' rights. So there's, like, a a lot... There's a rising cost of living in LA, like rent is getting more, increasingly more and more expensive, right? Mm -hmm. Which also has to do with gentrification. And then another issue would be um, LA is so huge that it's kind of hard for people to connect even within LA because everything is so far from, from each other, such as like, you know, like Long Beach or San Pedro or something is really far from LA when they're facing like kind of similar things. So I would say that that's maybe two things that LA is facing right now, and I'm I I'm not sure exactly about Miami, but I had 
spoken to others who are part of the Miami local and they were explaining similar things. A lot of things are like far away and like you mentioned earlier, transportation. Yeah, I mean, uh, in, in Miami in particular, um, in terms of what like folks from my local are working on, um, I mean, one thing is definitely kind of, you know, around like workplace and labor organizing, particularly among like teachers, like public school teachers, education sector, something that, I mean, it's not only a Miami thing, of course, that's in, in different places around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like a local manifestation uh, with, you know, particular like barriers and limitations. And then also um, there's been a lot of work around uh, immigration issues, uh, ICE abolition, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, because, you know, Miami, even though Miami is like majority it's like a majority Latin city, but like the mayor who is Cuban American, right? And he has this like story about like hardship and coming from Cuba and everything. Like he was the first to like throw out, you know, the idea of Miami being a sanctuary city hmm. in the Trump era. So wow. I mean, if, if I were to limit it to like two issues, I would say that. But you know, I mean, a lot of big urban areas have these similar struggles. I mean, gentrification, of course, is a major issue here, and you know. We, we could fill a lot of space talking about uh, the social and economic problems that our cities are facing right now. Yeah, and particularly in Miami, you guys are sinking. You're falling into the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard about this, yes. Yeah, it's crazy. So this is something that I'm not going to say is very rare on this show because um, it's a show ran by people of color. But um, we do have three Latinx here on the phone. And I would like to ask both of you about what it's like in your experience being a person of color in a leftist space. Um, well, um, for me, it's like uh, living in L.A., it's not really my race really isn't or my ethnicity really, really isn't brought to my attention because I am usually surrounded by you know, people who look like me, right? Like, because L.A. is heavily Latinx. I mean, there's also, like, a huge Asian and black population here. So race really, or ethnicity really isn't a thing. The only time I was really, um, it was brought to my attention was during the, the L.A. Anarchist Book Fair, in which it was mostly, you know, white people tabling, and there was ultimately a clash in between the locals and the people who were tabling, and it was kind of like a conflict of like, you know, I want to, I wanted to bring in the anarchist book fair to a historically POC neighborhood, but then again, a lot of the people who were tabling were white, and I didn't know exactly how to navigate myself throughout that situation, so that was the only time really where my ethnicity was kind of like brought into question or brought to my attention. If not, most of the struggle that I have faced was mostly because of my gender, not because of the color of my skin. Yeah, for me, I mean, just talking about, like, my experiences in Miami. Miami is a really interesting place because, like, it, you know, obviously there's, like, a, a, a large, like, Latinx population. I mean, myself, I'm Cuban-American. I'm also light-skinned, so that's, like, in a lot of places, that's, like, you know, Cuban Diablo. You know, like, I'm not... <laughs> Like, it's sort of like this weird thing where I'm not, like, Caucasian, but I'm also, I don't know, for for a lot of reasons, there's a little bit of distance from, like, other communities as well. But, um, you know, and this this is actually, I mean, this is kind of a problem for 
certain segments of the left, like of people like who grew up in Miami, because I think uh, there's kind of this lack of awareness about issues of coloniality, of race. And then, you know, when I finally moved outside of Miami for many years, I realized like, oh, okay, that there's a little bit of a, that there's like a disconnect. Um, so it's, it's that weird, like kind of dual identity thing, I guess, if that makes sense, Brandon. Yeah. No, I totally understand the whole dual identity thing coming from a Mexican household and a black household smushed together. And you kind of can see, you can play different roles, but yet, in your case, it's kind of like, you, you kind of get the worst of both worlds. Because you got the, the, the colorism thing, and then the history of Cuban Americans in Miami, all that kind of playing around. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, that's an interesting, yeah, euphemism. So I know, personally, myself, I, the last three cities I lived in, Atlanta, Chicago, and Milwaukee. And they all have different dynamics with being a POC and then myself being, you know, presenting very black, but also Latinx and the kind of how that interplays. And um, I always kind of wonder if there was a left space in America where... The white people were there were just kind of like, all right, yeah, cool, respectful. And it isn't any kind of code switching that has to be done. And people kind of just generally play well in that sandbox, but still finding that place. Well, Miami is also interesting because, like, there, there's such a big pop. Well, probably L.A. too. I mean, Mark, you can probably talk about that. But, like, in Miami, there's so many transplants. So there are a lot of, like, recently created left spaces that reflect... You know, so it's like if I'm coming from like a, a Latinx position where I'm sort of like white Latinx, there are a lot of folks who are, you know, new to Miami who reflect like perspectives, you know, on, on activism and everything else that are kind of from other places and who, you know, are, are, you know, tend to be more like Caucasian in terms of like demographics. So that's also like another layer of uh, particularly like the last two years. Uh, yeah, for for LA, I think since it's heavily Latinx population, a lot of it is more um, generational, right? So, mm. um, so there's groups that are, you know, organizing within their neighborhoods, but there a lot of them are mainly like first generation or even second generation, but are like fluent in Spanish, right? And whereas I'm not at all, there's a, there's a generational gap, I think and somewhat prejudice held against people who are first generation and then people who don't know how to speak, you know, Spanish, right? Mm. So I think a lot of the conflict kind of comes from from that, like not being able to connect on that level, right? Because it's, you know, the language and then, you know, looking, being seen as more Americanized or whitewashed or something like that. And then from you know, the second generation or third generation perspective, seeing the first generation as like, oh, you know, like they're like paisa, paisa meaning like, you know, like super, like from the homeland, but like uses like a derogatory term. So like, country, country. That. yeah, yeah. Like he's from the homeland, he's from the motherland or whatever, but not like in the sense that they want to like 
you know, connect with them in any way or something, seen as different or seen as better than or something. Yeah, the language thing is really big. Like, I speak shitty Spanish. And, like, it's one of those things where even my old man is like, oh, Spanish is, is mucho. You know, it's, it's fucking broken. And I'm like, hey, man, you know, maybe you can talk to me more than just give me commands or, you know, shoot me off with my mom who speaks broken Spanish. So it's it's so funny, you know, hopefully there's, we'll figure it out. We always do, you know, but all right. I had a lot of time, fun talking with you guys. I feel like we're friends now. We broke bread. So. Yeah, great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, don't be a stranger. Come on back. So, thank you, Marky. Thank you, Jonathan. Hey, Brad. Thank you. the end of another episode i want to thank all you fine people who continue to listen to us please follow us on twitter at movement underscore color and support us at patreon at patreon.com backslash the movement of color my name is brandon payton carrillo adios color.